Welcome to the realm of magic and mystery, classic horror and sci-fi. You are now entering the House of the Unusual podcast with your hosts, Eddie and Joe. Welcome all you cool ghouls and friendly fiends. It's the House of the Unusual podcast. I'm your host, Joe Pavlansky, coming to you from an undisclosed location. Unfortunately, I cannot be with the group today. I'm going to turn it over to my good buddy, Eddie Guevara, for the introductions and the setup for what's going to turn out to be a great topic of discussion today. So, Eddie, take it away. All right, guys. How are you doing out there? Everybody fine? Um, How are you doing, Chuck? Jason? Pretty good. Great. Great. I know you had a new grandkid. Uh, Congratulations. Thank you. That was our first grandchild, actually. His uh, name is Roman. His middle name is my name, Charles. And uh, he was born two days ago at 6.37 p.m. out here in Pittsburgh. And I was at a show that day, actually. And I came home. Uh, I actually, I was te- I was texting my wife, Sherry. I said, how is, how's our uh, daughter-in-law doing? Her name is Cassie. And she was nine, nine centimeters dilated. So I had, so once I was done, I came home. I put the animals away. I got washed up. I changed clothes, and I went right to the hospital. And she, I gave birth literally within 45 minutes. So yeah, wow. so thought everything's well, and uh, the baby's fine. And both of the grandmas, particularly, are they're very excited. They're always trying to trying to babysit already. So <laughs> it's 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 a lot of fun. It really is. Well, patience on that, Chuck. You know, you'll probably have a few more in a, in a couple of years. So then you'll be. Getting a couple of congratulations, now, Jason. What's what's up with you? I know Jason has been more than helpful. Jason has been helping us with our site. He has gone through. He took a trip to China and came back <laughs> to help us out. <laughs> so yeah, tell, tell us a little. Not, yeah, Top Talk's not the not the easiest uh, website to uh, work on. I'll say, you can you almost have to to. Um, wedge changes into its um, system because it's made to look the way it looks and if you want to change it then you have to kind of dig into the guts of the thing and hack it in oh i see yeah i like the way the new format looks it looks really cool and i like the categories they're really neat yeah i don't even think you can see the changes i made chuck because the way that tapatalk does it if you do changes like i did them they mm-hmm. want to review them before they put them live so only the administrators can see the, oh, the changes I- until they say, okay, look, you didn't, you didn't put in more ads or you didn't try to okay. hack us or anything. So we'll okay your change. Oh, wow. Uh, well, hopefully that's, that's a good thing. You know what you're doing, uh, Jason. That's a <laughs> yeah, plus. Wow. Well, I never know what I'm doing, but I figure things out. <laughs> Jason, I have a question on this. Basically, mm-hmm. why do you think it, the Tapa Talk might be so successful around for a long time? It has like two or 300,000 forums and, and like the, uh, there's one particular, not the one I'm talking about is the one called the the horror classic board, horror mm-hmm. movie classic board. What do you think that it does so well? Just kind of- well, if you don't want to change everything, if you're happy with what it is out of the box, then I think it's pretty, pretty easy to work with. But it's not made to be easily. Mm-hmm. Changed well, unless well, unless somebody wants to go in and 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 hack it a bit. Am I correct in saying that Tapatalk allows people that are actually using it as an app or anything to even make money on it? Meaning, if I'm just a, a visitor and I keep mm-hmm. getting gold coins, I can eventually cash out. So I guess what makes it good is that all the visitors the site have a chance of making money too, correct? I mean, There's not a lot. Of- yeah. I know I haven't looked at that a lot for uh, other than what it said on, our, on, the, on the front page, but... Uh, well, I'll, I'll believe it when yeah. I see it. <laughs> I think the way it is is when you uh, get gold coins each time you vote, you can also vote the Tapa Talk higher and higher ranking each day, I think, if you look at the right mm-hmm. side. And yep. then you yep. can get coins. Now, for all the coins you get, I do know when it says you get 5,000, I think, or, or you know, 1,000 gold coins equivalent to $5 or something like that. Either used to buy more gold coins or uh, say, for example, because here's the difference with Tapa Talk, um, you have ads, it's a sustained app. Uh, mm-hmm. So the ads on Tapa Talk, uh, what it does is it's sustained. Now, if, say if you pay t- 
your site won't get any ads. So you're allowed not, you know, you won't get any ads and you get more gold coins. Also, hosting it, like in my condition, the $10 a month takes away, uh, allows me to have like houseoftheunusual.com pointing. So ah, you okay. kind of, you kind it of, covers stuck your, it covers, your, but it sure covers the cost. Right. It covers the cost of what I was paying, which was about $10 a month. Uh, for the Wix, which is a standby website. And in my opinion, when you have a stand a standalone website, the stare will go. But I mean, what makes people go to the Apple website? Only if you're going to buy an Apple. The rest of the year, you don't visit it. Uh, so if you, and this is the idea behind this, you build the forum where people can come each day and discuss topics they're interested about. They're going to cu- keep coming back. Mm-hmm. So if you build the House of the Unusual as a community, as a type of um, uh, gallery or, or something where people can come, up, an internet mall kind of, where people will come and chat, and then there's the buy it section, the buy sell section, all those people that become V or the people that become VP members, uh, they will be able to post ads and sell their own stuff there. They don't have to yep. go through it. Yep actually sell their stuff and it's like regular classifieds that they just can list in. I mm-hmm. think that it gives it a better chance to go out there. What I would because I noticed that Tapa Talk somehow uh, is kind of like a self-advertising forum. Like, you know, it, it kind of people in there without you even running ads, which is kind of weird. Um, I was wondering if you saw any of that, how that works. No, I haven't looked at that at all. I've been I've been down in in the guts of the the site, not in the, <laughs> not up top. Yeah, okay, that, that's that's a much, Jason. I know it's going to oh, cost welcome. you. It's going to cost you a lot of uh, new karate records, maybe whatever comes <laughs> my way. You know, whatever whatever you come across someday. Hey, uh, I wanted to bring up uh, really quick. I'm going to bring up uh, some points here that was very interesting, Jason. You came across a 1980 of the Johnson Smith company mm-hmm. and I thought it was hilarious because when I was watching that now this is the time I kind of started uh, the house of the unusual but it was back then it was called uh, Winter Breeze Enterprises <laughs> I don't know why I got that name but of course as the 80s pursued it became uh, PE house of the unusual and then I actually purchased the farm I started the original Fun Factory with Lou Weiss, the original owner, and then it became House of the Unusual instead of House of Unusual. They also used the name Nastex, N-A-S-T-E-X Industries at the time, which was what I used as my advertising agency. Now, the reason you do that is because back in the 80s, when you started a mail order business and you were going to put an ad in a magazine, they would give you 15% if you had an advertising agency. So people uh-huh. would open their own in-house advertising yep. agency and do that. Now, what I wanted to bring into the attention, just looking at that, the lady says the vice president of Johnson Smith, Craig Tarbeck, <laughs> I heard and I that. thought it, and and I thought it was kind of Tarbeck is a um, copywriter, and it's very unlikely for him to make mistakes. And she actually pointed that out and I, to him. I'm going to call him in a few hours because I want to like laugh with him about that. Yeah. <laughs> I, love that video. I love that video, Jason. I don't know where you found that. But I that don't was... know. The, you, the algorithm on YouTube suggested it to me. Wow. That was yeah, too cool. That was, and it was very well done. It was hilarious. Wow. Well, yeah, it, it was done at a time, uh, Chuck, that it's it's the 1980s. I mean, the, yeah. the company was still in business. They were still yeah. sending out. In fact, Johnson Smith, to people that are listening, is, is still in business today, but under a different regime. It's mm-hmm. a company, the company today that owns, that owns several mail order companies. Mm-hmm. And, but they still have the name Johnson Smith. I don't know if they're still in the same location, Bradenton Beach, Florida, because they moved to Bradenton Beach in the 80s. Right, right. But um, one thing I'm going to tell you, though, Craig Taubeck left them in 2010 when he retired. And Craig has been in our show. Uh, about three or four times, five times, something like that, Chuck. Oh yeah, he seems like a heck of a nice guy. Yeah, he'll get a kick out mm-hmm. of that video. Oh man. <laughs> no, he he. Will... The thing with Craig is, I was thinking maybe when I go to Florida again, I'm going to have to meet up with him a second. You know, uh, I did. The, the reason me and Craig kind of became good friends is I started contacting Craig in 1984, but Craig was always a very very business oriented person, and he 
too open about anything. He was like, okay, okay, you ask a question. He says, yeah, yeah, but he didn't give you no answers, you know? Yeah. And yeah. Um, I think what made it is when I actually, I sent him a bottle of wine, like in 1989, I called him back. He had received it, but I never heard from him. About seven or eight years later, <laughs> I met Lou Weiss. So me start doing the fun factory. The story goes that uh, Lou Weiss at one time had tried to hire Craig Tarbeck, Johnson Smith, bring him from Michigan over to New Jersey to work for the fun factory. What happened was is Craig turned him down. And when I mentioned Lou Weiss to Craig, it kind of bonded a little kind of a personal relation yeah. between me and him to talk about. And then to even make it better, I drove 359 miles to have lunch with him. Yeah. And I met him in Brandon from Miami Beach. And it was phenomenal because, um, you know, we became really super good friends since then. We must really have a, um, a, you know, a good relationship. I call him all the time. He calls me for my birthday. He never forgets. I call him, you know, it's, He's a good man. Uh, one thing I'm going to tell you about mm -hmm. Craig is yes. he's one of those friends that you want to have. And another thing, he also had a great relationship with the famous um, uh, Morris costume, Philip Morris. He knew him personally. He stayed in his house uh, several. Uh, my contacts with the Morris, uh, uh, the you know Morris costumes, comes from him because of Craig. I also was and stuff with. Uh, Lotus, Loftus Magic, Loftus, uh, yeah, you know, because yeah. they all knew him. Like he would travel entire country uh, for Johnson Smith Company, and since he was the main guy from Johnson Smith, uh, you know, he was able to introduce me. I really got all my credit and all my stuff through him, so I do credit him for helping me start oh, my mail order company. Hey, the uh, one thing, that, the one thing that struck me about the video was people didn't realize, you know, back in those days that the Johnson Smith company was in the middle of nowhere. I mean, it was, a, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was a cold, yeah. cold place, like in the winter time and everything. And I can still remember the address. Cause I mailed so many, I, I mailed three, seven Oh five automation drive, uh, Mount wow. Clemens, Michigan or something like that. I mean, after all these years, I yeah. think I still got the address, right. And they, it's just my memory. They actually sounds like had an industrial park. All right. Yeah, yeah, they, but they actually, believe it or not, they had two different addresses in Michigan. They were Mount, I think, to automate. Um, I forgot the second address they had. Yeah, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna say one thing though. Overall, is even, and that's why Craig close-minded on the thing. They didn't allow people into like into the warehouse. They were pretty no. tough in that. Yeah, they didn't, and, they didn't urge that at all. No, you're no, right. no, they didn't. They, and it was kind of surprising though for a 1985 video that they're asking people that are probably in their 40s. Yeah. No, I mean, but she didn't ask. She literally said, where's the Johnson Smith Company? But she right. didn't say, hey, you know, the comic book novelty company. Because yeah. back then, they books with, you know, ads in them. So I was kind of surprised <laughs> about that, you know? I love the chattering teeth laying out in the snow. I mean, it was just, it, it was hilarious. Oh, man. I yeah, that, that, was, that was a great find. I've never seen that video I mean, I'm sure Craig hasn't seen it. I love the way they say Craig can spell on it. <laughs> it's been a while since I've seen a, a news article that had that much kind of uh, fun in it. We've yeah, that was yeah. serious news nowadays. Very, and, very well. And, and Jason, did you notice too how funny it was that it, you could see that that it was typed out? The letter wasn't in computer, it was typed yeah. writer. Where, yeah. where you could see the, the different lines that the words, some letters are higher than the other. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, it's hilarious. Yep. To a collector who were to see that film, you know that that letter that she received, if she had it today, would probably sell for $100. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It, that, yeah. That's, and I'm telling you because I, I have a couple of original letters from Craig Tobick that he sent. And I know that if I put them, you know, any collector of Johnson Smith would, you know, would, uh, would be very, but, you know, Craig did say mm -hmm. a great story about the Johnson Smith one time and i also did a link uh of a guy who is 70 i think 75 years old and he 75 when he wrote the article it's called small little things so small wonders and he goes on to explain how he used to buy from the johnson's company in racine wisconsin and then 
you know, over when it went over to Michigan. I think he used to live next to it, not far from it. Um, and he shows. And I thought the funniest thing was he's showing a little pig about an inch or two inches long. I think it was like an inch long. And the way the pig became alive was you took out a plug out of the butt of the pig. I got that. Inside. Yeah, you stuck inside a live uh, fly. A fly, yeah. <laughs> and then you plugged it back in so the fly would go and the pig would yeah. vibrate. You know? <laughs> yeah, you know what? The pig is made out of like a celluloid type of thing and it comes in a little box. I actually have one of those. I'm sure you got a few of those too, Eddie. But uh, you know what? I've never tried it. I would like to give it a, a shot. No. What no. What's you're supposed to do is stun the fly with a swatter and put him in there and put the plug. His tail was the plug. And uh, I don't yeah, know. And, but I like the way the plug goes in the like butt of the jumping pig, bean. You know? Yeah, yeah. But the, you put it inside the, the, the butt of the plague, which is funny. Yeah. One thing I'm going to tell you guys, though, honestly, I know Chuck, I never, to be honest, I never had, um, I've never even seen a real one uh, other than the one in the picture for the first oh, time. Oh, okay. I'll have to take the picture. Oh, wow. When I go to the storage unit, I got it in my little case off to get it out and snap a few pictures it's pretty cool yeah i'm gonna tell you remember this is the 1930s and 40s chuck i'm on i'm a 70s guy yeah yeah me too me too yeah i know what yeah. you're saying but yeah but that was a cool video you know what being in in the magic industry like i am there was a video it's somewhere out there it's it's actually pretty amusing too maybe jason can find it he seems like a pretty good detective uh from mac magic that's m-a-k it's in columbus ohio and i know that you know who they are eddie because back when you had your magic shop you probably you probably wholesale, you probably bought a lot of a lot of things from them uh but i knew jimmy king senior as a matter of fact i had designed a couple of magic tricks for him and uh, he came over to my house about maybe about 12 15 years ago and so i gave him the rights to you know to like one of the snake baskets that they produced uh, but anyway, there was a local TV show out there that did a nice uh, blurb on them. And I'm not sure. I guess that was in the 70s, probably the mid, mid to late 70s. And uh, it was actually pretty interesting. They went right into the place where they make all the cool stuff. And it was a really nice video. I saw an excerpt of it maybe 10 years ago. It's out there somewhere. So if somebody does find it, post it on the forum. It's pretty cool. That's back uh, in Columbus, Ohio. Columbus, you know, Ohio. I'm, I'm going to throw in something quick this the uh, the thing that's so great about the video you found jason is that it was done in 1985 now i got married in 83 and i started my mail order adventure in 1984 so this video when it came out the only company that was in it was actually the johnson smith company and you know you still had a few more you still had jack abel from uh the fun house in new jersey and you had the Amer Abracadabra Magic Shop uh, in Middlesex. You know, there were a couple, but Honor House had closed about two summers before that. Oh, and wow. that's when I was able to go down there, meet up with Wagman and stuff. And they say, well, ago, we threw out a dumpster of all the And I'm like, oh, gosh, <laughs> can I go back in time? But, you oh, know, that's basically so close. the history. Yeah. Now, Jason... Uh, Give us an update of what your search is going with all the karate stuff you're looking for. That's all. Oh. A lot well, of people looking forward for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to it too. Uh, I, I, so there was, I got a tip that on an old newspaper, an old advertising flyer from the 1970s, 1978 or something, it had a mention of Icondo in it. And it mentioned that this guy, uh, a teacher, I think he was in, in Agawam, Massachusetts had ordered the course and was teaching self-defense at a high school. Um, so I did some research. And I found his son who was living, still living there. His oh, son's wow. a lawyer. And he was happy to talk with me about it. And he remembered his dad and he trained in Kyokushin and he did some Hapkido wow. and he had tons of memories of the training in the 70s and 80s. And he remembered that his dad had that certificate, the Icondo certificate, and he was very proud of it. Um, but he did not have his stuff anymore. He didn't, he couldn't remember anything more about it than that. And, uh, it had been six or eight years since his dad died. So I guess it didn't, it didn't hang around. But, oh, wow. So close. So close. Yeah. It's always welcome. Over. Welcome to the club of the, of yeah. the <laughs> uh, but at least I know it's not totally fictional at this point. Jeez. No, no, no. But what you got to do is, I mean, that's great research. You reminded me, you know, I've, Jason, don't lose hope. I've done that so many times. I've tracked down, and then when I, 
I even was able to talk to the guy I told you, the son of mm-hmm. the guy who who had plans, and then he calls me up on a Sunday because he mistaken me for his uncle. So he sent me the ad of the robot plans. I said, yeah, you know, you can get them on this. And I sent me like a self-made magazine. That's I got all excited. I sent them $20 instead of the two so he could send me the plans. And I go, wow, I can't believe it's so easy after so many years. And then he calls <laughs> yeah. me up on a Sunday. This was a Sunday morning 15 years ago. I know you call. I don't know who you are. Uh, my father died 20 years ago. He used to be Jay Marr. Uh, I mean, I sent you. He was so nervous. $20 for whatever reason. And he said to me, if I ever find, but you know what? The years have gone by. I never heard from him. So I don't think he ever found it. Uh, but, um, you know, that does happen. You do come across a lot, but I could tell you one thing also. There was an article found in 1989 inside Rutgers University in New Jersey, and they were selling the original Charles Atlas. Now, the Charles Ellis company at the time, since it was being sold, uh, Lou goes to me, try to see if we can get it. I spoke with Charles Roman. And this is funny because oh, I still yeah. have that, that original flyer somewhere where they were selling. And Charles Roman goes to me to get $100,000. And he said, the company only makes about $20,000 a year. But, you know, it's a trade name. Oh, yeah, you can have a trademark. But apparently it was actually bought by a, 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 an actual friend of mine, which is, uh, his name is, he goes by Docklands. His name is Jeffrey Hogue. I don't know how much he paid for it or what the story was, but the, I know Lou said to me, there's no way $100,000. Oh, no I, I was like, I was like, what a bummer, man. I could have owned it. <laughs> but honestly, um, Lou Weiss took me under his wings. He thought it was interesting how I contacted him out of a phone book because uh, early 1985, 80, yeah, early 85, I started the company as Winterbreeze Enterprises with a friend of mine that I grew up with. We were selling books, like how to make money and stuff like that. So I remember one of my first ads had a skeleton sitting in a chair and it said, tired of waiting to make <laughs> And uh, so, you know, I, I fell in love with mail order, but I always dreamed of having a mail order uh, novelty business. And when I start, I figured what I could do, because back then, in order for you to make a catalog, remember 1985, no, some yep. of the computers that were out there were like the Tandy 1000. Oh, and Apple II. Basically. Right. Yeah. Right. I, I mean, I don't think even Apple was in 85. And I mean, I could be wrong. Maybe they were. I forgot the exact time they were out, but. Oh, yeah. You know Apple, well, 79 for Apple, I think. But, okay. But they were terrible computers back then. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They were horrible. And yep. you had to paste any ad you made. You had to cut up. A, mm-hmm. And right. the wording, you had to get this mm-hmm. huge typesetting machines that cost thousands. Uh, yeah, it's so funny looking at make, those ads. You see the line sometimes around oh, the, the, the clip art. <laughs> you 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 know yeah you do you, you know how you know how you use the fonts to grow, make them big or small yeah you would take them and just make photocopies and enlarge and reduce and then you were able to put them on the thing <laughs> i mean it takes forever and i figured you know together a small catalog and i'm like you know what man if you well if you guys are familiar with a company called lb and comic books it has a little b and the guy used to sell nickels LB, right. anytime mm-hmm. you find an original catalog of LB, you can see all the cutups because when he photocopied them, all the, the taping, it's it's mm-hmm. like the crappiest catalogs I ever seen. But he printed <laughs> them, he used them, and you know, at least whatever he had, I guess in the 70s you were allowed to do anything to advertise, right? Oh, yeah. So um, and a lot of books when you order magic books or anything the staple and a mm-hmm. cardboard cover. And, and the thing basically is that a lot of people don't realize that. And that's a story to tell another time when I met with Cal, you know, um, one of the guys, graphic artists from uh, Channel 4, that he was as he sees me with the book and he's like, oh, we can do this. And then when he made a better version of it, I'm like, the problem is people at the time do not want a better version of it. They want the original looking version. If it was stable, yeah. they want it that way. People want the original classics. And that's how you have to keep them. But, you know, uh, the point is that I started looking for how do I start a mail order business? And 
going to do is I'm going to search out in the courts and find out who owned the company, who owned, and that's how I came across, you know, Honor House. Honor House was easy. Bergman still owned the same building. He still had a company there, so that wasn't a hard thing to get. But Lou Weiss, I couldn't find him. I kept getting no address. So one day I took a yellow uh, phone page and I figured, okay, everybody who runs a mail order business is Jewish. If for whatever novelty companies are all Jewish owned. And it was true. So I picked out where were Jewish people. First of all, he's going to be rich. I picked up Bergen County. I started looking. I found a Lou Weiss. I called the first one. No, the second, I hit a jackpot. Wow. He couldn't, believe, he couldn't believe that I found him 10 years after Sunday in his uh. house. So his personal house phone, and he figured he'd meet up with me, and the rest was his. I, somehow I convinced him to start the original uh, Fun Factory again. He took me in as a partner. Uh, he had all the cash and ran our full-page uh, mail-order ad, the first mail-order ad in, in 10, 20 years that DC Comics had for novelty. In 19, uh, 1992, 93 was the year we ran it. And um, he, he, you know, it was all loose money, eighteen at the time. So I was super excited. My dreams came true, and I was down in loose warehouse. He gave me a little, and I was there filling out hundreds of orders. And everybody in his office, including the secretary, would look at me like, "Here comes the kid again, making uh. us do extra work." You could tell because I mean, we were getting hundreds of orders from kids that didn't know how to write and she had <laughs> information and then she had to give me the order stapled and ready with a mailing label for me to ship it out that's cool like me in the company <laughs> uh, hey that's a lot of good that's a lot of good memories you know hey, mm -hmm. but getting, getting back to the copying pasting brochures when i started magic in about 1985 maybe 86 i made up my own brochures and i did that for years i did exactly what you guys are talking about i would I would go through different magazines and cut out different fonts and so forth. And I'd put it together yep. and I'd spin them off. If it had lines, I'd go with whiteouts, you know, and I would get the lines off. I'd center them all. I still have a few of those things and they, they did serve its purpose. You know what I mean? I did that for uh, quite a few years until I had them professionally done. You know what I mean? And so it worked out pretty well. And the other thing I wanted to mention as far as comic books go, I think this upcoming Chuck's corner coming out on Friday is comic book magic. So make sure you, all the listeners check it out. There's some really cool stuff on there. There's a, there's a novelty thing that I put on there. That's uh, it's 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 like not really real, but it's fantasy. It's called Gremlins in 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 a box. And so I act like my grandfather bought this little box. And there's a gremlin in there. He finds a playing card. I uncap a sharpie. I place it inside, and and uh, he signs it. You can see the sharpie moving. Check it out. It's really really cool effect. So hey. it'll be on. Awesome. Cool. That, that remember that's going to be this coming Friday, 7 p.m. each Friday. Corner comes on, and uh, hopefully, um, I'm getting Jude Cambus now. Jude Cambus is a very nice gentleman, he's been on our podcast several times, and he drove up to Jersey because he's working off the area. And we met up, uh, he drove about three hours to meet up with me two or three weeks ago, and he's a phenomenal person. Um, I actually told him because he does travel the entire country to do blog travel blog and, and probably will have it on his because I mean he, he acquires novelties. He's into like, Aurora monsters. Wow. So yeah. he's gonna be doing like as he acquires different things by posting little miniature videos. And I think that's gonna be it will be great for you, Jason, to Eventually, I know you're the computer programmer. You're the brains behind computers. <laughs> you know, do something concerning your tracking of, of mail order items because I think people really enjoy that stuff when you come across those novelties because I get a lot of people asking me in emails about your stuff and have you gotten anything new? And I've directed oh. them to you. You know, I've said, yeah, I've got like four people. Uh, they're nice. following your... Uh, one of them is Dr. Saab. <laughs> uh, he, he comes on regularly. And mm -hmm. That's another massive collection of, you know, karate stuff. And but it would be yeah, great. I've, seen, I've seen some videos of him in his uh, in his collection room, and it's like a, a toy chest in there. Holy uh. Yeah, it would be it would be awesome to honestly have you have your own uh, segment. You know, uh, 
I don't know I, if I, I think, make that much progress, but uh. well, the, the the thing is whether you make progress or not is the fact that you bring it up to the table and people, hmm. you know, you got to remember something. Like I said, even when you like something, when we're talking about doing paste off and stuff for catalogs, I remember when house it was kind of like a mouse that you would scan it over a, a, a print and then you can make an ad from it. And I was so fascinated. And I bought a $4,000 computer just to be able <laughs> wow. to scan images. Yeah. I also bought a, a used thermal paper from a library that had a rubber top uh, that it, it took four people to carry it home for me. And this was, a, and I also tried to get a mimeograph machine from the schools that would print because I did. I was trying to do yeah. anything that would possibly make me uh, be able to publish mm -hmm. something of my own yeah. Yeah. without, yeah. you know. But the yeah, whole point is, that's, that's one thing I've had. I've been having fun with is is scanning in some of these old uh, old martial arts books that are getting yellowed and because they didn't print them on good paper or anything like that, and they're yeah. starting to age out. So I wanted to have some record for the future of what these things were. And uh, the software that's available nowadays for cleaning scans and, oh, it's a, it's amazing. and cleaning up the text or removing all the speckles and background colors yeah. and stuff like that is great to work with. It's so easy. Yeah. Jason, uh, when you scan, normally the old days you would cut the binding and then scan them. How are you yeah. doing it? Are you, are well, you using the new scanners for that? Well, currently I'm only doing the ones that are booklet size. So they'll I'll pull the staples out because... I've seen some some of the old booklets have rusty staples. And I don't want them going rusty on in my books, in the, in the bag that they're stored away in. So I pull out the staples, and then I have a full eight and a half by eleven sheet that I can oh, do. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. That that you could scan. I, I've been, but yeah. one way that I don't know if you, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar because you're a computer guy. You seen those book scanners? They sell for like four hundred, five hundred dollars. That they allow uh, you to scan the book and then and then yeah, I've seen, I've seen. I I built one. I built a book scanner to use it and I could never get my angles right for the, to, I could get minimized reflection of the lights in the picture, but I could never get it rid of it a hundred percent. Oh, okay. I, I bought it was 387. I actually returned it because <clears throat> the knee was at the time I should have kept, it. but you have to do a little bit of playing around after, but what it is, yep. it looks like a tabletop lamp kind of like a, a long it's either five seven 12 inches long and it has a, a rod and then mm -hmm. it has a base and then you have two yellow things that you yellow or white things you attach the thumbs to you turn the pages of the book and you hit the button with your foot and it scans one page and then you turn the other page you're doing it yeah but it, i was i bought it because i wanted to scan see i have a, a set of books that chuck has they go for about two thousand, Dan, and I wanted to sell the books, but I also wanted to keep a scan profile of it. And the book is like fourteen inches. Put it into any scanner, and it's like seven, eight hundred pages thick each book, so you can flatten it out. So what this mm -hmm. is, when you take the picture, <clears throat> it actually flattens out the pages for you. Yeah, it does it um, in software. Yeah, it, yeah. The so it's really a machine that's like two thousand dollars that's really phenomenal and that's how the big companies actually do like no you know, no I, i'm used to you know if you look but, at google google built built a machine to do that for their their books project mm -hmm. and it is quite a rig it slides the book in at a v angle on a on a glass uh, like a glass almost a triangular pyramid and then the book slides across it and it takes the shot from the bottom up. So it on two wow. cameras, one pointed at each page. Wow. Alternately. And then it then it just slides back and forth. And as it slides, it moves the the page forward one, page forward one, page forward one. And it can fire wow. I don't know how many pictures a minute it can take, like sixty. Unbelievable. And, well, yeah. That's kind of how those machines work. There is one that's two thousand dollars that's very similar to the one you're talking. Yeah. Spain has like four can because I was searching. I'm like, how do people scan books? I'm like, mm -hmm. and and I was shocked. Let me tell you, four years ago, this this is a thing. It's like no. from last year to now. And I, I got to tell you though, Jason, it did a very good job in scanning the one book. I was, oh, okay. And, 
Yeah, I was wondering and how well it would do because I've tried some of the apps for the phone for book scanning and they're no, okay, but no they're they're not as good as a flatbed clear Scan. Of course, Boom. of course, but that's what I'm saying. The ones that they sell that are for books, uh, you can go to Amazon. In yep. fact, you can buy one and then send it back if you don't like it, but get one of the higher sure. end. Yeah, and, and you a, you'd be surprised what it could do. Because I got to tell you, well, I'm saying higher end means like the six, seven hundred dollar ones. Yeah, instead of the yep. three. But now, since I did that last year, we're talking another year. They might new models and. The whole point is, or, or it might have gone up with uh, with the uh, supply chain issues. Books on print outsold by seventy five percent ebooks. Mm -hmm. I think people are still. I mean, you go to Barnes and Noble in any given time. I have four or five Barnes and Nobles by me. There's yeah. one floors, and it's packed with people each time you go. Yeah. They have a, yep. a star a Starbucks, which actually that's owned by that Starbucks. That's owned mm -hmm. by Barnes and Noble, and I don't know if most of their business is from that, but they have like a hundred people sitting around, you know. Yeah. And um, so books are—I mean, they're selling a lot. If you look on KDP, which is Kindle Direct Publishing, and you see all the stuff, there's people that are mm -hmm. showing things that they're selling sixty thousand dollars worth a month. Oh yeah, making a million dollars a year. Uh, people are buying the print. It's hard to read an ebook, you know. I mean, you read yeah. an ebook and it hurts you. And, yeah, it and... does. It does. You know what? And I like the smell of a book. I like the feel of a book. I don't know. I know I'm considered yeah, like well, a dinosaur. I like bending book. the corners. I like. Uh, <laughs> well, you got to remember, typos. there's a lot. There's a lot of people living longer than ever before, and the majority of them are still in tune to what we grew up with. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. the the now the now generation don't watch TV because why they don't watch TV because one we came from an era where we had 20 30 TV channels and everybody would have to watch what's on so the entire nation was in tune as yeah. to who was famous who was not now you have over 1000 different channels different streaming uh formats YouTube oh. TikTok so you go now it's not rare to find a person that you can up to in their 20s and say who's the president of the united states and they might say abraham lincoln <laughs> i mean honestly we're there's a guy in to actually goes on times square on a, on a weekly basis and he'll ask young kids questions like how many states we have country and they're like say ethiopia you know like they're totally idiots yeah, if you want yeah, i call them idiots you know but sad. um Oh. I told the other day, uh, Elvis, he goes, who's Elvis Presley? I go, you've never heard of Elvis Presley? No, I no. Honestly, I heard the name. I'm, it's like people are not in tune with the world around them anymore. No, no, they're not. So what's happened is that those people that are in tune are not generating the millions and millions, actually billions of dollars in sale nationwide. Is the people that I think are doing that and the generations that still see TV and watch TV, you know, yeah. which is 60%. You know, Cause let's be honest, you go to any rural community and someplace doesn't even have internet yet. You know yep. what I'm saying? Yep. I, yeah. I go, I go across the border to a, a little town called Ogdensburg up in, up in Northern New York. And uh, they have a machine out of the, out in front of the supermarket. Where you can get a DVD by putting in your in your credit card or whatever or cash, I think even. Wow! It'll spit one out for you. Oop, there you go. <laughs> no, well, well, that's what I live in. Let me tell you something right now, my friend. I live in the most dense area of New York and New Jersey, and every single shop, right, which is like you know, the supermarkets around my area, they all have that DVD thing outside that you buy in the kiosk. The red box, I think it's called. Yeah, yeah the red box. They they all have them, and my mom spends there every day. Oh. Uh, yeah, you have to that's return very, that, uh, yeah, you have yeah. to return the next day. Yeah, but, it's got uh, a slot, it's got a slot it takes it in. Yeah, I've done it oh. many, many so, times. So it's like Blockbuster, except in a in a yeah. vending exactly. machine. Yeah. yeah, no, but Redbox is very active. I saw the machine yesterday, it had no movies as a brand new Redbox is very active, and anywhere oh. you go here, uh Best Buys or whatever, they still have a section on DVDs and, mm -hmm. and yeah. stuff, Walmart, you know. Um oh, yeah. They, I don't think they're going to go, first of all, things have 
So the majority of people over 50 do not even know how to use a, a computer, let alone use a cell phone. Okay. Yeah. Most people just follow, well, how do you do this? I mean, all my friends, I'm like the only one that knows how to use a cell phone. I have a, a friend who's super smart, you know, everything. He's like, Eddie, can you do this? So it's, it's very like if you didn't do computers before your 20s and you're 50, you don't know how to do them at all. That's true. And, yep. and, and I know, like, for example, my friend Chuck and my friend Joe, Joe's 42. They're not computer. Yeah. Right, Chuck? Not, I mean, not, so... not, not particularly. No, my wife is actually better at computers, you know, the workings of them than I am. Chuck, yeah. Chuck, I was watching some of your, uh, your YouTube videos with your, your constructions and I'm thinking, uh, you got to get into some microcontrollers because I think it would blow your mind. Yeah, you know what? I'm 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 radio control basically. I know I didn't get into the Arduino or anything yeah, like that. They're so easy to to use. It's it's it kind of takes it took kind of the fun. It used to be you have to fight to build electronics. Yeah, but the Arduinos are so easy. It's like oh, was that was that it? And I know. Yeah, you just you just download the information on. Yeah, it, and everything's. So jigsaw yeah. puzzle put together and it just it's it's great but yeah, I think oh, for yeah. timings and firing off other things and um yeah definitely yeah i would i would like to get into it someday yeah because i'm so used to radio control with the transmitters mm -hmm. and uh i've built uh i built a flea circus already jason years ago i sold it uh it was 15 channels on a, on a wow yeah so each button performed one feet you know i mean it was it was something else and wow. it, yeah, the inside of that thing underneath looked like spaghetti. There was <laughs> yeah, some wires. like a wire wrapped computer into there. Yeah, <laughs> it's crazy. You, you know, uh, Chuck, when you're saying that, and it's funny because when I got into things, don't, uh, I used to like spy gadgets in the 80s, and mm -hmm. I would buy all this how-to kits and electronics, but I never put them together. You know how to do electronics, you know? Yeah. And sure. um, just like when I first wanted to do my own radio station, I have about four or five, I would say, start your own radio station, uh, UF, um, FM transmitters mm -hmm. that are still in kit form to put together. In fact, Chuck, you come from the era of Heath kit. Remember that catalog? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I've got an old Heath kit uh, oxiloscope right here. Yeah. <laughs> found it at the dump. Oh. Did you build that? Because everything used to no, come no, with it was soldering. Yeah, you see, if somebody put it together, I I kind of gutted it because the electronics inside were like destroyed. But the box, I've still held on to that really nice box. Nice, nice. I'm gonna put a computer in it at some point. But you you know, uh, like a robot that they used to sell. It was called Hero One in the oh 80s. hero. Yeah, I remember Hero One. It, oh, was, yeah. it was like four thousand. You know, I got it five dollars on eBay one day. Yeah. I have it somewhere. I mean. It's a crappy robot, man. It looks like a square box on wheels. It's, <laughs> it's, I don't even, I guess at the time, you know, it's crazy to say this, but in the 1980s, um, you really could, 80s, they, when you bought a plane that would fly, like there was a P, P1 or P4 Mustang that you would buy. I forgot who used to sell it. And it was gas powered. Okay. You would put the gas, but the only way it would fly, you had to um, you had to take a string that came with it, and you would mm -hmm. spin it up in the air. You know what? I'm right. Yeah, yeah, I, know yeah exactly. I think that was the Cox. I think Cox. Made <laughs> yeah, yeah, that. that's like the flying saucer they made that went remember, up and then it I came I remember down. that. Yep. Cox. That's nothing stayed airborne. I remember getting those rubber band power airplanes with the propeller you would put together. <laughs> Yeah. And you wound up, and that thing would go up about two feet and go back down to the ground. Never flew. Yep. Yeah. There was nothing that would that you could keep up there. Only a kite, if you were lucky. Yeah. No, I'm looking then, at the at, at the uh, the quadcopters that are available for twenty dollars at Walmart nowadays. Like that's amazing. Uh, those would have blown our minds back. Oh then. my goodness. They yeah. would, and you know what? The funny thing: everything gets airborne. Even a stupid little ball, you can fly inside your living room. Yep. yep. Which is, I don't understand work helicopters i mean radio control when you spend a thousand dollars you were able to get airborne but people don't realize prior to the 1990s you could not get anything airborne cox like you said all the cox planes had a string that you had to which right. even if it had an engine or not it was still going to fly 
Yeah. You know, if, if you just gave him momentum. And the cost was crazy. I remember trying to, I was looking into that when I was in high school to, to build a model airplane. It was like, well, do you have a thousand dollars? Do you have a thousand dollars to build, buy yeah, the right. controller and the, and the servos and the kit and the motor and the gas to put in the motor? And <laughs> you, you know who did that? Dr. Fob. Dr. Fob did that because he's, oh. uh, he's an electrical engineer and mm -hmm. he used to like, uh, he would get electronic stuff and do what they say, uh, when you reverse engineer it, <laughs> yep, yeah. Uh, one of his favorite things to do that was to the. I think it, we have a. I don't know if you ever seen it. But we did a round table, round robin one time, like a podcast, and it's live on YouTube. If you go to the YouTube channel and you go where it's live instead of videos, you'll see mm -hmm. a list there. There's one that us four, Todd uh, mentioned. I think it was it was Todd. Uh, Chuck, you were on it, I believe, right? No, I couldn't make it that time. I wish I would. Oh, you Maybe did it? Okay. And, that, and no. we go around and he actually takes things apart and shows how they work, you know? I thought it was a pretty good video. But, oh, um, I'll, have to, I'll have to find that. Yeah. I, I, like I said, I actually, and in fact, we're talking, um, Jason, so you should consider being part of it. Uh, I'm waiting for college. Everything's going to be over this week or stuff because Dr. Fob is going to, or Dr. Saab, not Fob, Dr. Saab is going to actually talk to Todd Mitchin and, and stuff, and we're all going to do that again. And yeah, Todd, yeah, um, no, I'd like to participate. That would be cool. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. It's actually now full-time sea monkey guy. He retired. Oh, uh, wow. He, you know, he retired at 35 years old. So, you know, good for him that he was able to retire young. But mm -hmm. don't tell him I told you, because he'll say, <laughs> I, had I had 30 to that. <laughs> but yeah. um he's now full-time uh, he's he's gotten what he always dreamed of his right. kids dream became a reality and the best part is for people that don't know out there todd is the guy who designs all the sea monkey stuff that you see in the stores wow, uh, he's in charge of designing uh not in charge but the company that put of course uh trans science still owns the copyrights and everything to it but she mm -hmm. licensed out the products to, I think, I don't know if it's uh, toy makers or something like that. And it's still like a $6 million a year business. Uh, wow. You find sea monkeys in every Walmart, Target. Um, so, yeah, it's it's going still. And, and Todd gets to design the packages, the toys. And people, Todd has, I'm, I mean, it's his private life, I'm not going to say, but he does have some good inside connections to big giant companies and i'm talking about in the design department so todd is a good guy to know mm -hmm. yeah i've been doing martial arts for, for for a few years before i got my copy of mail order mysteries and mail order mysteries had a couple of of the martial arts books in there nice and, they, and then i lucked into being able to get copies of them on ebay they just happened to somebody was selling uh, a couple of copies so i got a couple of of the books and then, um, I don't know, a few years later, I was, I think I ran across that site that has a listing of all of the martial arts uh, ads from comics. Not all of them, but a good selection of them. And it got me curious as to what, what was the actual material like for these ads that promised the world um, <laughs> and all the secrets of the Orient uh, for, for $1.99. <laughs> so I, I started tracking them down and then it, it became more of um more of a detective story that which was more interesting rather than just being able to buy them it became what well so the books and the ads have become separated and you have to kind of figure out which book goes with which ad and even if the books are available or not and so it becomes a bit of a, a detective story and a scavenger hunt at the same time and yeah so that's that's where i got started great uh, Jason, uh, when you bought those original books, mysteries came out. Um, yep. I think one of the biggest thing that pushed mail order mysteries into a reality was the fact that, uh, lost against me for the seven foot ghost, which devastated mm. you made him cry. <laughs> yeah. But I, I want to ask you a question. It was kind of, it was kind of, I, I thought it was so funny when he finally travels here. And he looks at the ghost, and his eyes are just like really round. He's like, "Wow!" And he, man. And he says, "Look over there for a second, Eddie." As he takes yeah. out his uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> exacto knife. No, no. 
He actually took it like he had found a pot of gold and you could see how much he really cared for the item. Mm. I, I wanted to ask you, though, did you ever, well, out of, I mean, just because I had so many Jasons I've sold to, I there is one Jason I've been dying eventually. I think I spoke with him one time, but we've been following each other for a while. And Jason started a blog years ago called, he's a graphic artist and he's really good at what he does. In fact, he's the trade i would say and he uh created um a blog called scar stuff s stuff and it's on it's on blogger if you go to blogger you'll find it and he was the first guy online that started download the horror records from the 1970s wow okay and yeah and then he would do yearly things and all this stuff and I got to tell you one thing about him, though. He was really, really good. But anyway, what I wanted to say, did you ever did you ever at any time buy one of those books from me that you have? I don't you think so. Book? No, I don't think so. Okay. No, I would remember because I, 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 only, uh, I only learned about them from reading about your collection. So I would have remembered if oh, I had bought them from you. Okay, because I was gonna say I, I did go on eBay under different names. I'm on oh. Lions, the Land of Secrets, House College of Illusion. They're probably you in my know. Gmail background here. If you do, I, I really would love to see if that's a problem because I remember selling a couple, uh, but I want, but I want, and, and I don't know the name Jason. I want to tell you guys, uh, you know, when I said about the. You're not uh, ham rammer, uh, ham ham rammer, are you? Uh, that wasn't no, one no, of the names. No, but what I was going to say also, bringing up uh, to the website, to our website in the forum on novelties, right under Jason's famous Johnson Smith uh, video, which is one of the best videos I've ever seen. Uh, I put a link to the actual playing record of of the. Johnson Smith horror record from the 1970s. Nice. You can hear, mm. you can hear the uh, the full thing there, and I also did a link for that other column of Small Wonders, I think it's called Smith Company. Um. So Jason, yeah, if you do come across there, I would be interested in knowing that because I remember one particular bought from me the book that's inside mail order mysteries but i had two copies of it the one that's inside mail order mysteries is the better copy i had another oh. copy that the front cover had a slight chip on the right hand side yeah. sold it to him and let me let me check my copy here uh oh see if there's a chip missing cuz <laughs> i've got it right here here's here's katsugo it has no chip missing. No chip. It's not you then. The only Since... other one would be uh, the world's deadliest fighting secret. Other than that, I think I know. No, it. no, no, no. The, the, you know what's funny? I paid for the first world deadliest the fighting secrets inside mail order mysteries. Actually, cost me one hundred and forty nine dollars. Wow. Yeah, and then I was able to obtain for like forty, and mm -hmm. one for sixty five bucks. So I have yeah. three copies of the thing, right? Yeah, it's um, funny. Some some of them you get dirt cheap, and some some they yeah. come at a quite yeah. premium. Well, the 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 ghost in mail order mysteries, the Johnson Smith ghost. Uh, the other one I bought seventy three. That's my original. The Johnson Smith ghost uh, that I fought with Kirk. Uh, we went on a fight, mm -hmm. and it cost me eight hundred and no, I'm sorry, oh, nine hundred and seventy eight dollars, yeah. I believe. Wow, nine hundred, yeah. and it was like ten dollars shipping something. I remember reading that story because he wrote a, a blog post about that somewhere. Or it, he yeah. was interviewed and he told that story and he was teaching a class while the auction was going on. And finally he, he kept, he said to everybody, just take a break because it's coming yeah. up in the last five minutes of the auction. <laughs> and then he got outbid and it, it made him cry a little bit. The Cherry Caputo case files. Hello, my name is Sherry Caputo. I'm one of the members of the podcast from House of the Unusual. I wanted to talk about a subject that interests me, and I hope it is one that you will enjoy as well. It's about the modern use of DNA 
to solve cold case, cold cases that were not solved in the past. A little bit about myself. I'm a retired registered nurse. And to be honest with you, if back in the day, if the forensics was advanced as it is today, I would have probably been tempted to go in that direction for my career. But anyway, if anyone doesn't know, DNA is the building block for the human body. It's virtually in every cell. It contains DNA. It is used as a powerful investigative tool. Only a few cells are needed. That's all, just for just a few cells for a useful sample. And that can, that can be um, from your saliva, from like a bite mark. It can be blood or skin cells from like underneath the fingernail scrapings. Also, it can be from hair, semen, blood, or sweat. That can all be used to identify the perpetrator. Now, I came across an, a, one of the very old cases, one from 1971, which was solved 50 years later with this advanced DNA. Thanks to that, um, they were able, and also um, well-preserved evidence. That's a key too. It was back in Burlington, Vermont, July 19th, 1971. Her name was Rita Curran, and she was found murdered in her apartment. Now, Rita was 24 years old, a second grade school teacher who recently just moved out of her parents' and went into a shared apartment with three other roommates that she really didn't know very well. There was Beverly and Carrie and Carrie's boyfriend, Paul. Now the apartment was in, it was like a large house, like, and they converted this large house into three apartments. Rita and her roommates, they lived on the first floor. The second floor, I believe was like four females that lived there. And the third floor was a married couple that lived on the third floor. So her two roommates, Paul and Carrie, they were boyfriend and girlfriend. They went out to eat. They were at a restaurant bar and they were there for a while. And they decided around 11:15 PM that they call the apartment to invite Beverly and Rita to come join them, have some fun. But only Beverly was awake and she decided to go. Earlier, Rita had come home from practice. She was in a barbershop quartet. So she was there and she went, um, came home, got ready for bed and put her hair up in rollers because she always did that every night and, and eventually fell asleep. So around 1230 a.m., Paul and Carrie decided to come back to the apartment. Well, Beverly followed about some time later and the three of them just sat up in the living room and talked for a while. Beverly did share in a, a bedroom with Rita. And when she went in, Beverly came running out quickly and said, oh my gosh, I think there's something wrong with Rita. And sure enough, uh, she was deceased. But they called the police immediately. Now the, the police report stated that they found Rita lying on her back naked and it looked like she had been sexually assaulted and definitely strangled and it looked as if she had struggled with the assailant as her curlers were pulled out of her head her hair thrown around the room um, the curtains were torn off the rods and her bed was pulled away from the wall the petite girl of only 100 pounds she fought for her life that was so sad well, police called for backup and they had the detectives come in and the medical examiner. And they also wanted the, they called the FBI in because they wanted to have them help them bag up the evidence carefully. They bagged up her clothes, her bed sheets, and even her hair curlers as well. Now they found one lone cigarette butt from a Lark brand. I don't know. That's an old, old brand. <laughs> I don't know if you remember that. Um, and it was under, found under her uh, right elbow. So they did take it as evidence. Now, Paul and Carrie, they both smoked, but that wasn't their brand at all. 
So the police looked around. They went outside to see if there was any way that the perpetrator got into the house. And they had like a sandy driveway and there was no footprints and there's no evidence of breaking in. But then Paul had reported that they never locked, believe this, their front and back doors. So I, I don't understand that. I guess back in the 70s, people were more trusting. And it was a college town, but I'm not sure uh, how questionable that was. But anyway, so the police, they went around, they questioned the neighbors and also the other tenants. Um, the next day, the girls were back. Um, they answered on the second floor and they didn't really have any information to give. But the married couple, Michelle and William DeRuz, um, told the police that evening they were together the whole time. That was the married couple on the third floor. They didn't hear anything or see anything. And so, like I said, when they went to the second floor, no one answered. But they did catch up with the roommates um, on the second floor the next day. And they really didn't have any other information to give that, for that night. Now, during the autopsy, it was noted Rita was killed between 11.20 p.m. on the 19th of July and 12.30 a.m. That was only a 70-minute window, so that wasn't, that wasn't very long. Eventually, the case did go cold, so over 50 years of Rita's death would come and go. Rita's father, he passed away in 1991. And then her mother, she passed away in 2002. And unfortunately, those poor um, parents never found out who killed their poor daughter. So Rita's siblings and her other family members, they never gave up hope. But in, but in 2019, the Burlington Police Department Detective Commander Lieutenant Treeb, he decided to reactivate the cold case of Rita Coran. Lieutenant Treeb and his team, they poured over all the case files, and the primary focus now would be the forensic evidence and the new DNA testing and research, which came about since then. The male DNA profile that was pulled off that Lark cigarette butt, that was enough to compare to the number of suspects on the list through either direct comparison, CODIS, which is the national base for CODIS and the um, uh, familial comparison. They even compared the DNA to like the first responders, the officers and detectives who were on the scene, as well as uh, Rita's roommate, Paul. All were excluded. Now, since there wasn't a hit on CODIS, CODIS is the national index where the DNA is submitted and the majority of the time, I believe that they have to have a criminal background to be found or to be a match. And they decided to go to the familial comparison. And what that means is um, a lot of people now are doing their DNA through like 23andMe or Ancestry.com. And that's how they use it to find family members that have like uh, the match of that particular DNA, not the, not that complete match, but they know that that um, DNA is related somehow. Actually been very successful in identifying suspects in several high profile cases across the country. Preeb and his team, they researched several labs and they found, they decided to contract with Parabon Nano Labs in Virginia to sequence the DNA from the cigarette butt. So in 2022, the DNA was sent and was submitted to the Family Tree DNA. C.C. Moore, who is an investigative, genetic, genealogic, and media consultant, plus she's a chief genetic genealogist for the Parabon nano labs and that she boasts the unparalleled record of over 100 successful identifications of violent criminals in the two years since the unit's launch which is very impressive now cc began her analysis with the previously known names in the suspect pool 
and then several new names were added as well. Now, among the new names added was William D. Ruse. He's the gentleman that was on the third floor, which after careful analysis, C.C. Moore's report was that it was indeed D. Ruse DNA on that Lark cigarette butt. At the time of the initial investigation, when they questioned his wife, Michelle, she had reported that her husband at that time had a criminal record and she had lied to the police stating that they were both home all night. But in fact, after 11 p.m., they had a little argument and he took off and he came back later and she was fast asleep. So according to Detective Treebe, William D. Ruse, he actually died in California from a morphine overdose in 1986. He was cremated, meaning no available biological evidence was available because when you're cremated, I guess there isn't any DNA to be had. But fortunately, William did have a half-brother who volunteered his DNA, and they found that the DNA at the crime scene was a match to William through this half-brother. So it was found out later soon after the murder of Rita Curran that William actually moved to Thailand. He left his wife. He became a Buddhist monk. And somehow they demunked him because he took off his clothes or something he shouldn't have done. And he ended up moving back here to the States. He actually was married like three times. And when he interviewed his third wife, uh, she did report that he did become violent with her, actually choking her a few times. Um, so she was definitely not wanting to be around him. So the case had been solved and Rita's remaining siblings and family were contacted and they were given the great news. At least they had some kind of closure after all these years. Now this concludes my part of the podcast and hopefully this marks may spark your interest in the new DNA and genetic testing, which is solving more and more cold case files today. Okay. Thank you for listening. And if you want, please give me feedback. Thank you.